Hello, Tim Bellpot listener. I just wanted to throw out a bit of a disclaimer that these early episodes, we were still figuring it out, and we got better in pretty much every way. Definitely audio, storytelling, joke telling, research. So, um, you know, maybe start with episode 20. But if you still want to see what the growing process was like for us, continue listening to these early ones because I could see how that's fun. But um, just know it gets better. Hi guys, I just wanted to let you know that since the last disclaimer, we've gotten so much better at making disclaimers. Like for example, um, this one has lasers. This one has some dinosaurs. Talk like a robot in this one. And if you want to listen to an episode like without any disclaimers, I would say um, maybe like 27. I think Bruiser Brody, I think that was like the first episode where we figured out kind of, oh, this is what we do. So, yeah, no disclaimers on that one. Um, I mean, you could listen to this old ass episode. I wouldn't, you know, and I fucking wrote it and edited it and researched it and. All right. Well, uh, enjoy this episode. This is a perfect episode for me, guys, because I have so much dynamite in my life. Please tell. Like, uh, not that I I'm, have experience with explosives or anything like that, <laughs> but like a dynamite kid, always one of my favorite wrestlers. Yeah. Always and since like forever. Also, too, I've had my own battles with $5 wrestling dynamite. Uh-huh. And then also, too, I opened for JJ Jimmy Walker twice now. That's some true dynamite. <laughs> it is very true. That's... Uh, yeah, that's that's how he starts every one of his sets. And he's like, "All right, now listen to my jokes." You know, like he just like, right, "That's it, I did and it then for that's you." Every tag, right? Because because if he doesn't is... do it right away, they're going to be calling for it for the rest of the show. Yeah. They were calling for it in the middle of my set one time. Like somebody was just going pounding on like the the bar, going J J J J in the middle of my set, and the feature had to tell that person to be quiet because the people running the establishment were like, "Nah, we're not going to help this guy who's doing comedy in this bar for the very first time. We're just going to him <laughs> suffer up there and have." him a verbal fight with the audience to which uh, Jimmy Walker came up to me afterwards and was like you should open for Dice Clay you're very combative <laughs> I took this, that as a compliment I opened for Bobcat Goldthway and sick brag he's like this artsy filmmaker now made one of my favorite movies God Bless America I don't know wait real quick artsy movies uh, there's a movie where a chick blows a dog go on yes artsy <laughs> movies uh, <laughs> But, you know, he's, like, serious now, and he does these, like, long-form bits and stuff, and the crowd was just like, do the voice! <laughs> and he literally, on stage, was just like, I'm not doing the fucking voice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and finally, just after they broke him down, he finally went, like, Mark, yeah! you know, and then he got <laughs> off stage, and he's like, I've never been this depressed before. <laughs> and then Nick was like, can I get a picture with you? Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Will you make the weird face when you take the picture with me? <laughs> Police Academy. All right, well, I guess welcome to Tim Bell Pod, where for 83 weeks we won the Monday Night Wars. Uh, is, is that? You, I, I'm Nick Alexander, and as God is my witness, I'm broken in half. 
Beside, <laughs> beside me is the very tall super shredder of Tin Bell Pod, who years later we will find out is Kevin Nash, Michael Loving. And my knees are probably as bad as his. How's it going? <laughs> and we're here, one left turn off Meat Parade Boulevard wow. in the Manning Cave with the merit badge earning, campfire burning, tent breaking, trust fall taking, the man Scout Jake Manning. Nick, I know you put a lot of work into the intro, and it's very good. But can I be Kevin Nash? Like, uh, I, in all instances, I, 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 I would. I definitely would. Thanks for listening, and if you surf the World Wide Web, help us defeat the evil podcast algorithms by leaving us a review and rating wherever you are listening. Today, we are talking about a guy who was without question one of the greatest ring workers of all time. The list of wrestlers this man directly or indirectly influenced is likely in the thousands. We're talking about the man, the myth, the legend, Dynamite Keto! Okay, I want that introduction. Now, that was a good one. I want that one. I was really bracing the whole time. I was like, oh God, he's going to do another J.J. Walker shit? Before we get into this case study of short man syndrome, let's talk about our two main... <laughs> Great introduction, and then hey, just, and then hey, just throttle hey, it you down. know this guy that we're going to bury right at the beginning? No, I, I love... Uh, the comedian mentality, I love you, but go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah. So, let's, let's talk about our sources. Really quick, let's talk about the 1999 book, Pure Dynamite, The Price You Pay for Wrestling Stardom. I read the book, and I did not get a fucking personal pan pizza, so I'm very distraught about Dude, it. Dude, do you not remember? You have to read multiple books uh, to get the personal pan pizza. Yeah, you just can't eat, eat you know, read, read one, and then yeah. you eat the pizza. Like, it doesn't work that way. You're a guy, you're a kid in fifth grade reading a dynamite kid book? You think the teacher's <laughs> not going to be like, what the fuck? Which, what a scam, by the way. Like, you have to read multiple books, like, yeah. just to get the smallest pizza in the world? Uh, it's one book per slice. Uh, That's how it works. Uh, okay. Four bucks equals four shitty slices of pizza. We were talking about this earlier, but out of everything I'd heard about this book, thought it was a little tame. Like he was very open about his steroids, his drugs, uh, doing unspeakable shit to people. <laughs> that was tame? Which I thought, you know, was very groundbreaking for the time, but we all know that 80s wrestling was steroids and drugs and emotional scarring. Like, I, I guess as a jaded fan now, it, it just wasn't that much of a shock to me. Well, much like his in-ring style, Dynamite was ahead of the game. Yeah, as right. far as like pulling the curtain back and exposing the craziness behind the scenes, uh, the book was revolutionary just as much as in-ring in -ring work was. It's also, it's like written in half kayfabe half not he'll say something like oh i hated that guy is that your angle or is like he really worked my injured leg is that true or is it, it was very confusing well in there rumors that it was ghost written or at least well, it was transcribed every, almost but, every wrestling book i know i know but i thought it, it was at least thought that someone did it more so than oh uh, like wrestlers. he has very limited input yeah uh, i don't know all right now let's talk about our second main source the documentary because we have a special surprise for all our listeners. Ten Bell Pod was able to get in studio, live in the Manning Cave, the director of the official Dynamite Kit documentary. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the director behind High Spot Network's Dynamite Kid, a matter of pride. Please welcome... The man scout, Jake Manning. Hey, uh, I, I, I thought I thought Michael was gonna get his shoes out and do the radio bit where he starts walking <laughs> in. He's walking in right now, guys. He's walking in. 
I have known you for years now, and you have literally never brought this up to me. I had to. I fi- I found this on YouTube, and I was like, "What? Like, if I made a documentary about anything, first of all, it shouldn't be on YouTube because you have to pay <laughs> yeah, for it. Goodbye. Yeah, th- thank you for not supporting a friend. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, how many things does Jake, as as I've learned to know him, uh, how many things does Jake be like? He just like shoulder bumps. He was like, "Hey, you know, I made a documentary about the dynamite kid, yeah. right?" <laughs> Yeah. It's like, that's totally the Jake Manning I know. Just offer it up information. Listen, I am an onion, my friend. I have many layers. <laughs> it's true, it's true. That's why I was like, you're not a braggart. I'm just glad I liked it and I didn't message Jake like, hey, did you see this piece of shit? <laughs> Which I just rewatched the documentary five minutes before you guys came over to record this episode and I thought I was going to text myself that same exact <laughs> message like, hey, Dude, you- who, who, who made this piece of crap? But actually, um... Uh, it's not as good as probably what's out there today. Like there, there are some guys that are putting some fantastic documentaries up for free on YouTube that you can watch whenever you want, Nicholas. But uh, <laughs> this one was actually you have to pay for. Nick's not big on paying for stuff. Yeah, but but for the time, wrestling documentaries the way they were, I I, I think it like fits during that, and I think the story holds up. I'm pretty happy, which I'm. Yeah, I you, I was dreading watching it. That's why I waited till. Basically, with just enough time for five minutes before you guys got over here for me to watch it, like that's how long I'd been putting it off, like to the absolute last second, because I was afraid <laughs> I was going to hate my entire life and everything I'd ever done. Because... So your planning was to have the nervous breakdown right before we recorded the podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So what year was this? When did you start working on it? When did you finish it? When did you debut it? Oh, I mean, if you want to know all the particulars about it. I do. I'm, yeah. Basically, <laughs> we... I got in contact through somebody who did a lot of private signings in the UK. And the guy's name is Anthony. He now runs uh, High Spots UK. Oh, and I didn't know that was a thing. Anthony's yeah, strategy was if he, like, there was if there was a famous wrestler or somebody, he would basically just figure out where their address is and knock on their door and be like, <laughs> hey, man, you want to, I got some money. You want to sign some stuff? <laughs> basically. What are you doing right now? Yeah. But also, too, like, Anthony's, like, very good at dealing with, different types of personalities he i think one of his jobs was like if somebody came over on like a press junket for a movie he'd be the guy that would handle and usher this person to the interview yeah. or to the hotel or wherever they needed to go doesn't matter the personality yeah he's, he's worked with people like john travolta no, wow, like that's even yeah i mean like, to deal with yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. and he dealt with a vine and oh, wow. john's like requests him every time he goes over wow that's impressive yeah like that's how well anthony can work with different types of people and you know he basically hunted dynamite kid down and said hey can i do a private signing and of course my boss found out about it and we connected with anthony and anthony kind of ushered in and negotiated a deal to where we can come over and do a private signing and do a shoot interview sorry what year is this this was probably 2012 2013 gotcha because i think the copyright on the documentary is 13 I think. Yeah, because it, right? it would finish right over about just past Christmas time, but it was 2012. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah. But we, we were going over, we we're going to film a documentary, we we're going to get some pieces signed, and we got over there and we recorded the worst shoot interview of all time. The <laughs> um, <laughs> long and the short of it, yeah. and the long of it was the trip, and then the short of it was his answers to every question. Right? <laughs> I know. So, but you put subtitles in the documentary, which was like, Bravo yeah, from you, a, like I mean you can get it but when you really have to try to listen for something it takes away from the experience so when you put them up there it was easier to pop so filmmaker stuff good direction <laughs> well how, done, sir how'd you get him to do it because he shut himself off not just from pro wrestling but like the entire world basically like what do you think it was that like allowed you guys to go in and do it honestly it was Anthony's relationship 
Yeah. Anthony was a cool guy, charmed his way in, and was like, hey, I could get some money for you, Tom. And, right. you sure. know, and he's like, yeah, sure. I'd love some more money. <laughs> I, love money. <laughs> I would love to have some money. I'm yeah. living in a very small apartment right now. Uh, which, you know, people say, oh, he's living in a slum and it's, it's an awful place to the live. CNN interviews all uh, over that Yeah, but no, yeah. His, his place is just as nice as my place. Okay. It's just my walls have far more <laughs> comic book art. and yeah, yeah, yeah. You cover them in cool stuff. Yeah, in cool stuff, it's perfectly fine. It's just he doesn't have a whole lot other than like a John Wayne. Uh, there was multiple John Waynes, wasn't it? I th- yeah, it might be a couple of John Wayne like paintings and stuff like that, <laughs> and then like one big picture of him winning the, the junior heavyweight title in New, New Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not that's John it. Wayne, not John Wayne, <laughs> not, not my kid, to, to be correct. But yeah, it's just a small little little place, and we recorded the interview, and it did not turn out very well. Actually, we blew up the audio board because of the circuitry in the UK is different. Oh, oh yeah, that's totally so, right. Yeah, so we blew up the audio board. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. Was there not like adapters? or did it, I, mean, uh, I had adapters in it. And it, it still did it? Yep, still so did it. Wow. Audios from the camera? Um, it up? Yes. Yeah. I was able to hardline in a little bit. I went to a, like, a, like a backup thing that I had, but yeah, the audio wasn't great. He had very short answers. He didn't recall anything, and that's why I don't really believe a whole lot of what was in the book. He just had this look of like he'd never heard those words and we were repeating yeah. exact phrases out of the yeah. book and he's just like uh i know uh and he's very either cautious to answer or he's just like i don't know where this is coming from yeah i think there's a lot of things uh with that where there's like apprehension and and someone saying so you said this and there's that fear of just like i i don't remember it and but i don't want to come across that i don't remember it because it makes you look even worse maybe mm-hmm. so i like i've seen so many documentaries where that's kind of the case and it's just the person's just like shit how do i present myself here well and also too like it's very intimidating because i mean obviously you know the reputation and the reputation is whatever's in that book and i remember the first day we went over there which we were going to get the pieces signed and then ship them back the next day and then come back for the interview the next day so we're going around and we had to go through the back and i think anthony did this on purpose to mess with us because there was clearly we could have just walked in the front door because oh, he prefers when you go through the back so he brought us around to the back and right as you come through the back in the window Keep in mind, we're coming in at Dynamite Kids. This is post-CNN interview. This is post after reading the book for two or three times in prep for this interview. You guys are creeping through his backyard. We're creeping through his backyard, and we come around the corner, and sitting in the window is this large Bowie knife. Big Daniel Boone fan. Just right there in the window, a huge knife. (laughs) And then we got to walk in through the back door. And I think Anthony did that to kind of, you know, pucker our buttholes a little bit. Yeah. And then we came in and you know signed everything, and then the next day we did the worst shooting interview of all time, and we realized we can't release this, and we spent all of this money. So basically, to recoup the investment that we made in the interview, we decided to make a documentary about it, and luckily Kickstarter was a big deal. And basically, our thought process is like, hey, if you guys want to have this turned into a documentary, we're willing to do that, but we got to pay people for their time. Yeah. So if you wanted to see a documentary of the Dynamite Kid. Yeah, please donate. If not, and this doesn't get funded, then we'll just release the worst shooting interview of all time. <laughs> but that's how we'll pitch it, <laughs> and and we'll just and we'll just eat our losses, and that's gonna be this man's legacy. If you like Dynamite Kid and you like his legacy to be kind of explored in a, a far better way, we thought we were gonna get it from him. But apparently, we got to do a little bit more work. Yeah, and that's that, that's kind of how we pitched it. Is that when you brought in the hearts when you decided to turn it into a documentary? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it was only it was supposed to start off as a shooter interview, and we thought that you know who better way to tell his legacy than him himself? And come to find out, that was a far more difficult task. <laughs> and after 
I mean, it's a hell of a comment, though, too, on just his whole career to have it so difficult for him not to do it. It just really made it sink in how much the business affected him, how much it messed him up. And Yeah. Well, and also, too, it's like it's very interesting and also a testament to his dedication and to his fans that, like, now we don't want that interview to be his legacy. Yeah. And we kind of like to see it explored and, and honored, at least as, you know, in ring, whatever you think of him personally. Right. I, I know that's going to be a conversation and I'm already prepared for it. We'll get to it when we get to it. We haven't even <laughs> dove into him being born yet. But no, doing the, the Kickstarter and getting those backers, it was greatly appreciated, which allowed us to go to Calgary. It allowed us to go to New Jersey at a convention and just get like a revolving door of guys coming yeah. in. What is that? I mean, like, seriously, what does that involve? How many of you went? I'm curious, actually, from the pure funding producing stage. Just me and Michael Bacchicchio. Uh, just the two. So yep. plane tickets, lodging, that it all went towards mm -hmm. that, just two people. And we tried to make it as simple as possible. We would go to like one central location and we would tell multiple people. Like when we went to Calgary, we stayed at this hotel. It was right across the road from the... Winter Olympic site nice. and really close to the airport. And we just told people like, <laughs> Hey, going to stay here and leave here. <laughs> we, yeah, we basically just had a, um, a suite. We had a room set up at all moments of times. Like all you gotta do is just text us, say you're on your way. We'll be ready between these hours and these hours, which was all hours. You know, they only, they only like left like four hours. We're of ready. Sleep. We're ready. Like, if you want to do it at 6am because you got to work, if you <laughs> yeah. want to do it at midnight, we'll do it. We're here. And we got like Gamma Singh, Leo Burke, Keith Hart, Ross Hart, um, Dynamite's daughter, his, his son-in-law. Yeah, and we, we reached out, we reached out to his ex-wife. We reached out to all kinds of different people. And yeah, it was like a whole, whole to do. Did you get Bret Hart and Jim Neidhart for this or was that old shoot footage? No, we got, we got oh, those nice. directly because we could pull a little bit from some of the shoot interviews, but we tried to do that very sparingly. Like yeah. that we went, we went directly to a convention in New Jersey, which a lot of the guys were, were there that we wanted that we felt like we needed. And then if anybody else had any type of interaction whatsoever, we tried to work them in however, yeah, wherever. Whatever morsel you can get. But man. like some of the, the shoot interview footage that we got, it was just obviously guys that weren't at that particular convention or any convention in the past three or four months of the editing and filming that we did for it that we needed to start editing on it. And so we just got what we could. But then there was like some really good nuggets. Like one of the specific uh, Jacques Rougeau. Yeah. At that convention in New Jersey that you see Harley Race, uh, yeah, right. Bob Orton. We reached out to Jacques Rougeau, and that's part of the reason why we picked this particular convention because Jacques Rougeau was there. That's and a good point, yeah. we we talked to him, we had a conversation with him, we told him what we were doing, and he was like, "Hey, we already know that you told it on this other interview. Why don't you just come in, say it one more time? Here's an amount of money that we're willing to do, but we only needed 15 minutes of his time. Yeah, and we, we had is like, "Hey, you can do it right before you get on your flight and go back home. Yeah. Here's a couple extra dollars." Just tell the story. That's all we need. You just want your side of the story. If not, no big deal, but we'd really like you and we'd really like to give this money to you. And he's <laughs> it's always a good line. <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, well, maybe I'll think about it. And then all of a sudden he goes, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> and then he didn't show up. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah. So we had, we had to, but we tried. We, we, had, we had the cameras ready. We were sitting there. We were waiting. And we waited up until the moment that we knew his flight took off. <laughs> that's like that's how how much hope we held out for it. <laughs> yeah. That maybe he was agonizing over delayed, it. Yeah, and then he's got the extra time. And then he was agonizing over it. Like, should I or shouldn't I? All right, I'll miss my flight and go do it. Like we agonized about it for quite some time. Uh, you, where you went wrong is you offered him money and not moose and poutine. Oh man, I think maple syrup's the real. Yeah. Yeah. Or or bacon. 
as he would just or a roll of quarters. Yeah. I guess. Wait, Brian Adams CDs. No. Oh. Uh, we've already covered the worst shooter, shoot interview ever, Jake. I mean, it's obviously a brother. <laughs> I mean, no, 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 no. No, Jake, I mean, God. Snooka was 40 times worse. 41 minutes. Every answer was, uh, yeah. Yeah, brother. Uh, oh, he's a crazy guy. He's a good guy. Oh, I don't, I don't know about that. Baba. Yeah. <laughs> worse. No, I can't. No. Hands down worse it, it is brutal because you're like you give him this long question and he's just like yes and that's it I like, do, do what you want to do yeah, yeah. <laughs> did, did you guys really watch the snooker shoot because that was so bad it was the same fucking thing and it was repeated answers. i watched it i lived the dynamite kid shoot <laughs> all right fair enough that makes more sense were you nervous in either way that you always hear how much of a dickhead he was or nervous that you're about to meet arguably the greatest professional wrestler. Like, of and all he has time. a knife in his window. And he has yeah, a knife yeah, in his window. Yeah, yeah. there's no blood on it though. You yeah. could. Well, <laughs> I, I kind of stacked the deck for me. Like the first time I met him, I I had a Bruiser Brody T-shirt, and I and That's I good wore street cred. I, well, I wore it, and and I knew that was like a friend of his, and he goes, Oh, Bruiser Brody, guy. So like, I kind of stacked the deck that way to kind of like get over with him right away a little yeah. bit and then we spent that whole day just signing action figures books pictures eight by tens also i'm curious again like how many do you think total things he signed several hundred yeah, yeah. so that was the thing too like and, but we had an amount for what the interview was going to cost and then of course if we're not going to have a great interview the amount in which these items would have to be raised up to to break even on would have been astronomical so that was that was like a big concern so turning into a documentary was like the biggest thing and also too i got to meet a lot of super cool people the guy who did the music on it the band hessler um, yeah, Iggs, Iggs kincaid uh he's a musician out of uh chicago illinois he's a fantastic musician i still conversate with him every once in a while every once in a while we'll like we'll dm on twitter on instagram or twitter or something like, like Jake, that he says conversate yeah but, <laughs> but we do everyone and it's very rare and every once in a while and stuff like that but he did the music on he's a huge fan of brett and that whole calgary crew of guys right. and he just he made his services available and he did an awesome job um, I probably should have put a music track over the few thing, like the entire thing, as opposed to a few things like I did. It probably would have worked a little bit better, but yeah, I think you need your silence at times for documentaries like that. Yeah, and that's kind of what I, I felt about it too. But you know, Higgs did a great job, man. Yeah. He was great, and his band, like Hessler's great. Like he sends me CDs every once in a while, and I, <laughs> I put I put it on my iPod and I listen to him when I work out. So I made a like almost kind of like a lifelong friend who I still haven't met yet in person. Oh wow, that, wow. So. Where did Davey Richards come in? Well, Davey, if if you look at him, he's got a very similar look uh-huh. to to Dynamite. It's freaky. Yeah, like we we when we announced that we took two pictures of them basically like standing the same exact way in a ring and having like lightning bolt gear, yeah. like it was it was frighteningly scary. And yeah. and one thing I I'll have to say that I didn't do a good job of in the documentary, and and I think we should have spent. And even looking back on it today, I'm like, mm, we really should have took the time to do this because it would have had more impact today. Like we should have took a lot of, of the hot indie stars at the time, which are now basically the entire NXT yeah, roster. Right, right, right. That And it would have had more validity long term, but we would have caught them as they're coming up. But we should have talked to more indie guys 
that were just coming up when we were making the thing and talk about the influence of Dynamite. I don't think you get to understand how we get to these points. Because, yeah, totally. I mean, Dynamite was the first. And then, of course, you had like the Oz, the Eddies, the Dean Malinkos. Yeah. And then that generation inspired so many more. But if you don't have Dynamite inspiring this generation of guys, yeah, you don't, you get, don't, you don't yeah. get the Davey Richards. You don't get the Eddie yeah. Edwards. You don't even get the Sammy Callahans. You don't get the Ricochets. You don't get... Uh, whoever, just just name them, Cedric Alexander's. Yeah, oh. that would have been really cool. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's hard to fucking see in the see future. That far so many but also, too, yeah. like did you, we didn't spend enough time explaining the influence that he had. But like Davy's influence was very clear. Yeah, totally. at, at the time, and he was probably we needed kind of like some star power for the narration, mm. um, which was I think written primarily by me. I, I would have to say that Michael Bikikio, the owner of High Spots, probably came in behind and maybe made some changes and did maybe about 10% of it or 15% of it. But there were a couple couple lines in that narration and I was like, oh no, that's for sure me. <laughs> like the, the phrase rudderless ship. I go, yep, that's definitely a line that I wrote. Um, I identify with that line. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean, the documentary was actually pretty emotional to me. I bet, man. Because we went over to the UK like I was we were planning on going over while I was still dating somebody who was really bad toxic relationship <laughs> and then all of a sudden like we broke up and then a few months later like the trip had already been confirmed and then I, I, we we're going through our stuff and moving out and all yeah, that yeah. process is going on and then so I so many memories and, and yeah and in, yeah. and in passing I'm telling them that I'm oh I'm going to UK in a few months and they they really liked British stuff, so they were very like. <laughs> so everywhere you look, you see them. Well, they well, she was very angry at me for going over, yeah. and I was, you know, it's like, oh, that's a place I've always wanted to go, and you're going for work, and I hate your job, I hate your work, I hate everything about you, yeah. and, and so, oh, uh, so like, I'm going through all that, and then of course, when I go through rough patches, I dive into work, so now I have this project that I can just dive right in. When I was watching the bonus features on the DVD, um, I think you give like a 15 minute little interview with yourself kinda, and you get into that how you uh, you felt like you were being a true dynamite kid because you were committing to the documentary and your whole life was involved and you missed like Thanksgiving and Christmas and stuff. Yeah. And yeah, you talking about the relationship that kinda had lots of problems makes total sense with kind of filling in the gaps of what you were talking about in the little bonus interview. Also, too, I was struggling with uh, alcoholism a little bit. Yeah. I, I had my issues with alcohol through through the years, and yeah, that was in peak form. I would basically edit, I don't know, 16 hours of the day, come Jesus home, Christ. get smashed, just so I could sleep, because I'd be thinking about cuts and edits yeah, right. and slaving yeah, over stuff, and, and what do we need, what we don't need, who might have said something about dynamite on a shoot interview, and I should hunt this down, and can I get this footage to look better, and I was just obsessing over it, obsessing over it, and I'll never forget the day that I hit export, like, because I had multiple different cuts, multiple different, like, versions of it, and then finally we got to a, a version that finally Michael was like, okay, this is good, we can we can ship this out. This is what we do. Just burn a master disc and we'll send it out in the morning. Yeah. And I'll never forget when I hit burn on that master disc. Cause DVDs were still a thing back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll never forget when I hit burn. I remember walking outside of the high spots office and going outside and looking up at the sky and going, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Yeah, like, it felt like, like postpartum depression. Right, right, and, right. And, and I was in a funk for several months after it came out because I was just I was just taken aback because like, this was everything that consumed me. And then, yeah, and then I was too, my wrestling, like the influence of Dynamite Kid of just going out there, I don't care. 
You know, like if you want to do this, steroids, take steroids. You know, die in the ring, die in the ring. Like just hearing that over and over and over again, it burned in my head. And just that idea, like I started doing, like I always kind of did the diving headbutt because I was always a Chris fan. But of course, yeah. now I got this new, yeah. new idol that I've been holding up in Dynamite Kid. And I started doing the diving headbutt more. And like I started having a lot of back problems. Like there was like a pinching of my nerves. Yeah. And I was like, fuck it. I'll just drink and get through it. You know, like it was yeah. just like this weird thing that like affected me personally for, I would probably say a good six or eight months. Damn. Like, like, and just hearing him talk about like, I don't, I don't care. Yeah. I just want to put in the best match possible. Yeah. And if my body breaks, it breaks as long as it breaks in the ring and the people paid money to see it, you know, like I'm creating immortal art that'll never die. Yeah. This is what I need to do because what, what else matters? Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's, what I got wrapped up in and got caught up in and put me on like a spiral for a while. But like it did all kinds of cool things. Like I went to go see Calgary and Calgary is an awesome place. And I got to trespass on all of the historic wrestling landmarks in Calgary. We got to <laughs> trespass on the corral. We got to trespass on the heart family house. Oh, you, you went go, to the dungeon? I was going to say. I didn't go to the dungeon because it, it's locked up and we weren't even supposed to go. It said no trespassing. It's a dungeon, Nick. Of course it's locked up. <laughs> Jesus and Christ. Well, we weren't allowed to go in the house because you're not even supposed to go up the driveway. But we got this. No one lives there anymore. No, but yeah, it's, they're trying to make it. I think they did make it a historical well, landmark. Seriously, they were. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they have to. Well, there was, all, it, well, there was also like, history there. Like there was something else that happened in that that house too so that was like a double hit but they were able to keep it for for not just the huh. reasons of, of the Hart yeah. family but like there was no trespassing sign and we paid this taxi driver and we're like hey here's an extra 20 hold on a minute we're gonna run up this lane that we're not supposed to go up to yeah. don't say a thing and he's like okay and we just ran up this lane we got right on the steps and <laughs> got to look, look down into the dungeon and everything like that and it was just like it reminds me of like people going to Hollywood. It's like we're gonna go to the Lee Bianca house where the Manson murders took place. It's like okay, just go on in. There. Same exact thing. Yeah, same exact thing. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So we, we we did all that, and you know, like I said, Calgary is an awesome town. I would love to go in the summertime though. We went <laughs> yeah. in December, I think it was no, December. You it really awesome. Either December or February. It was it was definitely super cold. Probably the the most cold I've ever faced before in my entire life because it's very flat out there. Yeah. So the wind yeah, just would just roll, <laughs> roll over top. It was just rough, rough cold. Uh, I would like to call out how you listed every single person who supported on the GoFundMe or the Kickstarter. And I was watching the documentary. I was like, oh, the credits are just going and going and going and going and going. So uh, for lots of just indie filmmaking stuff, it was like, give respect to the guys that even gave two bucks to this thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was that's part of the agreement. Like, uh, yeah, if, no, if, you, if mean, you donated, you were at least going to get put on the credits. Lots of shitty ones don't even do that. So that was nice to see. Yeah. While you were in England, did you get some good-ass fish and chips? Uh, well, when I was in the UK, I'm pretty sure we had fish and chips. But we did also go to a Manchester United game. Oh, shit. Nice. So that was my, because Michael Bikikio, the owner of High Spots, is a big soccer fan, believe it or not. Yeah. And so he's like, we got to go to Manchester United. Yeah, and I didn't know. I didn't get it. <laughs> and I remember walking by a shop. Because you know, like, there's all these little shops on the way to the arena, and they have like 
the team's paraphernalia and yeah, I didn't understand it. But then I, we just kind of peeked in a little bit because my, my boss was looking for a cheap t-shirt because he went to the actual gift shop and he goes, oh, this is too expensive. I can do better. Obviously, very typical Michael, if you know him. Like I can I can, I can find something cheaper. So we're going around all these shops. I remember going into the shop and I seeing a picture of this guy and he had this slogan that said, you know, how'd you spend the money? And he goes, he goes, I spend it all on birds booze and cars and then i squandered the rest and i thought that was just the coolest I, i'm paraphrasing the line but i thought it was the coolest thing ever and i didn't know who the guy was and i found out it was uh i think it's um pete best soccer player yeah. they, they did 30 for 30 on him and, oh, okay. I, and i didn't buy the shirt yeah. but i found it online and i ordered it because i saw it in some shop on our way to manchester united i just i just thought it was a cool saying especially for my attitude at the time <laughs> if he just replaced cars with professional wrestling like that was my life at that time just but make we, that shirt yeah you got to change birds to women i guess for american yeah yeah they won't get it i'd probably change it to bin birds you know to make it australian why not <laughs> so when you do like a shoot with uh dynamite do you give him like a list to prep or are you like hey we're gonna do these questions here they come or do you like give him something to look over to know what he's getting in store for if they ask we will give them a list yeah we prefer not to right because you want the honest reaction yeah because especially the way shooting has always been done it's always like we want to see reaction in the moment and you just fire these questions at these people <laughs> yeah, yeah. which that's what people want i don't think it looks as natural when you're just firing questions at people it looks unoriginal like just for some of the research that we do and I have to watch Rob's interviews, it's like painful. <laughs> like how he can just throttle a conversation down. Like he'll have this <laughs> wonderful conversationalist sitting in front of him, in front of in front of his camera, and they are engaged and they're telling this wonderful story and he's just like, huh good what are your thoughts on don morocco you know like it's just it's so it's just it's Any good ribs it's awful it's awful like i that's why i've always preferred michael the owner of high spots who used to do a lot of the interviews i, I prefer his style because it's much more conversational yeah, it's more, yeah, totally. it's much more, it was like podcasty before it was podcast and you know just kind of let let the conversation flow and and good with the follow-ups because he went to school to be a lawyer so yeah. he's good yeah, with the that's how people open up too they get into a rhythm they and do, just they, not like bam it's not abrupt weird awkward shit tell people where to find it it is available on the high spots wrestling network right now as far as streaming goes it's also available at uh visit video that's if you live right. in the you charlotte area it. it is also available at highspots.com in dvd format if you want the dvd it has all the DVD extras, that, good the extras. Bonus, yeah, the bonus interviews and such like that. I don't even think the bonus stuff is anywhere on a streaming platform. So if you want that, make sure you get the DVD version. And we are running very, very low on them because ever since he passed away, they were they sold quite a bit. So we're down to like our last couple of cases. So jump on that right away if you want all the extras. But like I said, it'll always be available on streaming. And it looks pretty good. I was surprised because we, I mean, like, we filmed it in SD and I was a little worried as far as things look in an HD world. I was like, all right, this doesn't look too bad. Well, let's finally dive into the life and career of Thomas Billington. Old Tommy Boy was born December 5th, 1958, a few miles outside of Wigan in Lancashire, England. Dynamite's dad, Billy Billington, they named him Bill uh, Billington. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, he was a coal miner, so humble beginnings for Dynamite. He was a strict man who would never swear, but would discipline Thomas by punching him in his wee little face. <laughs> you know how parents are. 
Billy was the brother of Davy Boy Smith's mother, making Davy and Dynamite first cousins. And Tom was one of four kids with two sisters and a brother, all part of the Billington family. The Billington family was a British family, which has a long history in England as state-employed executioners. Some of his relatives include James Billington, a hangman for the British government from 1884 to 1901. Billington was said to have had a lifelong fascination with hanging people. This is a good bit you're doing there. And even made replica gallows in his own backyard where he practiced with weights, dummies, and what was rumored, stray dogs and cats. All right, when you're working in fiction, you need to, like, make it believable, and this is just fucking silly. There was also Joe Billington, who was an English bare-knuckle boxer who would regularly challenge his neighbors to fist fights. Oh, I thought you were going to say challenge kangaroos, so I guess it's not that bad. <laughs> no, that's the wrong country. Joe, Joe Billington was set to frequently abuse his wife and smoke 90 cigarettes a day. <laughs> so that was the blood pumping through old Dynamite Kid's cold, cold heart. Is that physically possible? I have no idea. This is all very fucking crazy. So Dynamite's dad and his uncle Eric were into boxing. So he not only learned to box from them, but he joined a boxing gym at the age of 12. Uh, in school, Dynamite gravitated towards amateur wrestling and gymnastics, so he's a very athletic kid. Around the age of 14, Tom's dad had now moved on from coal mining to construction, and he would take Dynamite to work with them and let him drive the dump trucks, which seems illegal. Nah. But it was there he met wrestling trainer Ted Betley. Ted saw Dynamite driving the dump truck and asked if he wrestled, <laughs> which is a weird step to get to. No, no, he wasn't even out of the dump truck. He was just driving it from a distance. He's like, you know what? That kid can wrestle. <laughs> it is. When I read that in the book, I was like, <laughs> what? what? He also said in the documentary, he's like, I was driving the number. I was driving the number. I was driving the number. Dumper. Dumper. Dynamite began training with Ted six days a week for three years, and it was Ted who gave the little lad the name dynamite kid so on top of that he was also training in bill riley's gym in wigan which was known as the snake pit as well as billy chambers gym everyone in england is named billy at the snake pit dynamite endured brutal shoot wrestling from much older much more experienced wrestlers dynamite's first match would be in 1974 as a very nervous 16 year old dynamite kid faced bobby hems and malvern wells england and dynamite won and he felt overall it was a good match jake manning how was your first match um it was a royal rumble style match (laughs) that was your first match yeah (laughs) well that's how you want to start them so you get the nerves out a little Uh, bit all the focus on you yeah it's on you and then i gotta do just go in there and in a ring and there's plenty of veterans that are gonna like take care of you aka just chop you because they think that shit's funny They get and, some woos out of the crowd. And they're like, yeah. yeah, and then like you know, we'll throw you over the top, and that's kind of is it. that a pretty is that a norm? Because I never heard. Yeah, that. I mean, I mean, that's kind of a norm. Like we're going to debut this guy, I, not so much anymore because yeah. you know, definitely not in the south. Because when I came to the south, like, oh no, no, we for your first match, we're going to put you in the main event. So that <laughs> way, you get all your friends to pay money to see you wrestle you your shit out of everything yeah because we got we got to get all your friends to pay for your wrestling now because the second show they're not going to come see wow it is like comedy huh? yeah <laughs> it is exactly. absolutely 
Dynamite began working for Max Crabtree, debuting in 1975. Here, Dynamite actually began to learn the business. He'd spend time facing the likes of Black Tiger, Marty Jones, and Jimmy Brakes. He'd beat Jimmy for the British lightweight title, becoming the youngest person to ever win it at age 18. He added the European welterweight title a few months later in January of 78. While working in the UK, Bruce Hart made a trip over to do some matches, and it was there he saw Dynamite work and immediately told his dad, Stu, that they had to get him. Well, the funny thing is about the Bruce Hart thing. Bruce was telling the story that basically Dynamite just kind of sheepishly walked over to Bruce and like, hey, could you see my match? You know, which is a phrase that I hear every single show I'm on. They're always like, hey, can you watch my match? Is there anything I can prove on it? Because we have a lot of young kids that want to get better, and they're always like, did you see my match? Can you see my match? Could you watch my match? Can you tell me how I am? So it's just funny that, like, this phrase has launched thousands of careers because like if he doesn't go up to bruce hart like hey can you watch this match you know bruce probably isn't going to go watch that match and and bruce even attests like oh he thought it was a rib and like are you kidding this skinny little kid all right (laughs) i'm 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 gonna get a couple laughs and see this kid and all of a sudden he's like whoa (laughs) this guy uh, we need to bring this guy in <laughs> to the biggest of big men territories, Stampede Wrestling at the time. I mean, that that adds so much to it, too, because, I mean, as small and petite as he was, to have that expectation and then to completely blow him out of the water and made it even more impactful when he watched it, I'm sure. Bruce asked Dynamite to come to Calgary, and since Dynamite was getting paid shit in the UK, it was a pretty easy decision. Bruce set everything up, and April 27th, 1978, Dynamite Kid left England. 19-year-old, Dynamite arrived in O Canada to work for Stampede Wrestling and the Hart family. However, everyone in Canada thought the 5'8", 170-pound Dynamite was too small. In fact, the very first words Stu Hart ever said to him were "Stu Hart," which translates. Wait a minute! I that's how I always talk. Wait, wait, wait! like I'm talking to him. I was like, "Michael Loving." Not only is that a disrespectful impersonation, it's also a bad impersonation. Like, if you're gonna do Stu Hart, you can be like, "Hey, little skinny little bastard." They take it in the basement and uh, I got my hole in there. And I see uh, uh, Donny Rogers right there. I'll give you the, the <laughs> you union. You say Tommy Rogers? Yeah, you know, the Jolly Roger. I'll oh, give you, and then I'll give you the Union Jack and I'll show you with, uh, with, who won the World War II. <laughs> <laughs> Notes, Nick. Work so, on it. So, uh, a lot of wrestlers in Calgary refused to work with Dynamite or sell for him. However, the Cuban assassin would, and they'd put on some good matches. Well, and the thing is about Cuban assassin that's interesting is nobody else wanted to work him. Like, I'm not selling for this little guy. They were all big dudes, right? Well, and like Stampede, like looking back on what the legendary, you know, reputation is of Stampede Wrestling, you know, Bret Hart, uh, Bulldogs, and what it would become, that wasn't the case. It was known as a big man territory. You had like Don, Leo, Jonathan, like these mountain of men. They would be, be there and just like monstrous individuals wrestling. I mean, you had Jake the Snake Roberts, Big Daddy Ritter, yeah, right. who was, you know, Junkyard Dog. So you just had all these big mountainous men wrestling there. And that's what that territory was known for. Then you bring in somebody who's 170 pounds and nobody's like, I'm not selling for this little guy. And it, it took somebody like Cuban Assassin that almost having a chip on his shoulder too. Like, no, no, no. I... 
I can make this guy look good. Like almost it was a little bit of pride in his in his yeah. own work and his own self that he's like, I can make this 170 pound guy look good. And also too, Cuban assassin. You know, he said, he goes, I've wrestled the British style so I can do whatever he is yeah, great at right. and I can highlight that and then maybe you guys are going to change your mind. And you, you just think about like, you know, if you don't have the Cuban assassin, you know, standing up and saying, I can make this guy look good. Once again, we, yeah, we, yeah. thousands of careers never happen. And it just right. it's so interesting and serendipitous how this whole story comes about. If Dynamite doesn't walk up to Bruce Hart and say, could you watch my match? It, it, it takes Cuban Assassin to go, I can make this guy look good. Five thousand little steps. And we're, and we're talking about you know thousands of careers and a, a style of professional wrestling that was evolved. It would evolve eventually, yeah, yeah, yeah. but not at the rate or right. probably at the quality it would have if it wasn't for Cuban Assassin and Bruce Hart. To survive in this giant men's territory, Dynamite had to go out every night and prove himself. He trained in the dungeon, and he'd end up working with Bruce Hart, who was also a smaller guy and a natural feud for Dynamite. Kid would face the entire gaggle of Hart brothers, including a very young, breaking into the business, Bret Hart. Well, and that's the thing, too, is like some of the Hearts weren't particularly big as well. Yeah. So... You know, they that's something too that you can directly that's a direct link right there. If you don't have Dynamite becoming a star in Stampede, and he was he most certainly was a star. It was it was very similar to like the Rock and Roll Express coming into Mid South. Like he was pulling in a lot of the younger audience. It wasn't like the typical wrestling audience at the time. Like open up the the demographics. Yeah, open up the demographics right away. Like bringing girls, bringing young guys, people who want to see action. Like that guy looks like me. He, he, I could be him. And then also too, like that's that's part of the reason that some of the older hearts, like their careers, weren't all that great because they were a little bit smaller. So it's like nobody's gonna take you seriously. Also to your promoter's kids. But then you have Dynamite. He shoots up to be a star. He just happens to be roughly about the same size as like a Bret Hart. So what they could do would be be believable against each other. They created a specific like, I think it was like middleweight title just (laughs) for Dynamite. And then this whole division of guys. And of course, it's going to be one of the better belts in the territory because it's going to be far more action, far more high flying stuff. So it's developing a style because someone like a Brett couldn't fight like heavyweight guys, but he could fight in there with dynamite. So if the skill level on the particular belt goes way up and the champion of that looks more impressive then yeah, totally. Yeah. And like I said, he was, he was seen as a star. I I think when I did the documentary, Gama Singh referred to him, he's like, he kind of was like, not on the level of Justin Bieber, but it was very similar. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like there was kind of like a like a mania type thing. Yeah, yeah, but like yeah. I, I would equate it more not to Justin Bieber, but more like the Rock and Roll Express in Mid South yeah. or Rock and Roll Express in Mid Atlantic. Yeah. It brings in a younger demographic, and as opposed to just these cauliflower ear <laughs> big guys, this is wrestling. They're just lumbering around, but you're seeing some action. Yeah, and it was in the junior heavyweight division that him and Brett kind of pumped life into Stampede that was kind of struggling before he got there. They would feud over the British Commonwealth Junior Heavyweight Championship. If you are good at Googling, there is a very young and skinny Bret Hart versus a very young and skinny Dynamite Kid wrestling for like an hour, and it's bananas. Dynamite's being stiff as shit with Brett, and then so there's these moments of Brett like retaliating, or else he's just gonna get beat to death yeah, by yeah. Dynamite. Potato, potato receipt, potato yeah. receipt. Well, and that's kind of way Dynamite would work, because he, you know, Dynamite himself had to fight for everything, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. like in all these bigger guys. So he's not definitely not gonna give the promoter's son an inch. <laughs> and there's a, there's a wonderful story that we kind of like 
went past in the documentary where Brett, he wrestled Dynamite. It didn't go all that well. Brett went off to Puerto Rico, but they came back just in time for the Stampede shows. And the Stampede shows, because that's during the Calgary Stampede, which was like this huge rodeo, this world-class rodeo. Yeah. And, I was that you put that in the doc about how the Yeah, but also, before. too, the, like the Stampede rodeo like stampede wrestling they would run wrestling shows in conjunction so it'd be like rodeo and like then wrestlemania weekend yeah but you'd, <laughs> you'd be pulling in from the, this rodeo crowd you'd be running uh i think that it was called the corral yeah. or it was one of the bigger there's like an area there's an old arena that's slightly bigger next to the saddle dome in calgary because they, they used to run tv in this one smaller building and then right across the street was a much bigger building and that's where they'd run the big stampede shows and they brought in NWA, I think, junior heavyweight champion Nelson Royal in to wrestle Dynamite Kid. And Nelson Royal used to tour with Harley Race. Like, you had the touring champions, NWA champions, and Nelson Royal and Harley Race. Like, you bring those guys in, and they were, like, a like a big deal and give whatever your smaller guys legitimacy. And right. for Dynamite to go with Nelson Royal, who was... Like I said, basically a junior version of Harley Race was like a big deal and seen as like a big deal in the area. And Brett was in the audience and was just like, holy cow, like <laughs> I need to really focus on wrestling yeah. because I want to be good enough to earn Dynamite's respect. And if you don't have that match with Nelson Royal at the Stampede and Brett's not there to see it, you don't have a Bret Hart. I assume that's the connection between, because uh, I know uh, Dynamite idolized Harley Race a lot too, so that would have been the connection where they would have kind of made buds. Yeah, that's definitely where they made buds because he would have had a great match with Nelson Royal. And so like, like, you gotta see this. Yeah, and yeah. Nelson probably would have spoke highly, and then like Harley Race is like, you did a good job, kid. <laughs> you know. Yeah. As good as Calgary was for Dynamite Kid, it also had some very negative effects on him. Um, in England, Dynamite was a straight edge of CM Punk. However, it was in Canada where he was first given speed by Jake the Snake Robert. Uh, Dynamite Kid began taking steroids in 79 after being introduced to them by Junkyard Dog, who also introduced him to crack cocaine. Crack cocaine, the official (laughs) cocaine of Tin Bell Pod. Every time you hear interviews with guys from that era and they talk about steroids, they're like, no, steroids were legal. And like, I don't know if they're exactly legal. Nobody was enforcing the rules, but like to say they're illegal, I I, th- I think it was possibly a stretch. Like, is ecstasy illegal? Like, I was it legal? Like the first couple years it came out, like. I don't know. Because it's hard to make illegal what you don't know what the fuck it is. Like Kratom. <laughs> like, basically, I'm saying steroids is Kratom. Like, they haven't got around to banning Kratom yet, but they, they'll get there. I look so clueless right now because I don't know what the hell Kratom is. Hey, brother, you got to be Quick up on your street drugs. You, you got to get up on your street drugs, my friend. <laughs> but no, that's like what they always say. Well, steroids are legal. You couldn't go into Kmart and buy steroids, okay? <laughs> the thing else, too, like steroids was used as injury prevention, and as much as you're getting banged around, healing, yeah, right? Yeah, he, the healing properties to it. So and it makes you big. And that's one of the things. And also, too, Dynamite just did things to excess. And Ron Bass said it best. He was like, he goes, I've taken cocaine. I've taken steroids. I've taken all kinds of different drugs. But he goes, I never abused any drug. Yeah. He goes, right, I, there's yeah. a difference between use yep. and abuse. It's all about moderation. Or yeah. the attempt at moderation. But, you know, Dynamite talks a lot about how, how out of control it got. But also, too, there's a wonderful story about how when Dynamite came over, he was, like you said, straight edge because his mom made him promise 
that don't drink yeah, like your God. members of your family because <laughs> all of the male members of your family are all alcoholics so don't ever take a drink so he's like i won't i won't do that i will almost certainly not do that and then the person that kind of you drop some names right there that everybody knows but a name that most people wouldn't know that in all of our research when we did the documentary, the name that always comes up with the guy that really kind of introduced... Here's a beer. Yeah, basically it was like, here's a beer, was John Foley. John Foley was the guy that like kind of probably softened the blow, like, fuck your mom, just have a beer, you know? It's just and, one, man. And then that opens up the gateway to yep. that. But John Foley was a bit of a drinker and out of control, and Dynamite just loved him and saw him as a father. Was figure. he just a journeyman around then, or whoa? He was like manager? a manager. Fellow a- Englishmen, and in England, they don't say alcoholics, they say Englishmen. Oh, I love how, uh, no matter how tough you are, no matter what, what your mom says, you take to heart <laughs> and you obey. July of 79, Dynamite did his first tour of Japan, working for International Wrestling Enterprise, He'd be on cards with people like Andre the Giant, Ox Baker, Haystacks Calhoun. But Dynamite hated his time in Japan, and he said he never wanted to go back. However, it wasn't long after Dynamite got back to Calgary that New Japan Pro Wrestling came over to do some matches with Stampede, and it was there Dynamite would face Tatsumi Fujinami. This match went so well that New Japan called up Dynamite and offered him work in Japan. They gave him almost double his IWE money, first-class plane and train tickets, so Dynamite accepted. Which is something Dynamite does a lot. Fuck this place. Wait, how much money? Yes. <laughs> like He does it like eight times in his career. Man, that's hardball. You get a little bit better if you're just like, no, fuck you. Okay, how about this? Aha, suckers. Well, also, like, Tatsumi Fujinami, he was like the litmus test for junior heavyweights and even heavyweights in some aspect. If you couldn't have a good match (laughs) with Tatsumi Fujinami, no matter if you were American, (laughs) Japanese, African, UK, Middle Eastern, were at Russian, whoever, whatever nationality you were, if you could not have a good match with Tatsumi Fujinami, you you just can't wrestle. Get out of the business immediately. (laughs) Immediately. Just a quick sidebar on that about if you can't have a good match with him uh, in talking about Dynamite Demolition Axe was like the three guys that uh, if you couldn't have a good match with him, you were crap was uh, Dynamite, Ricky Steamboat, and Tommy Rich. Didn't expect Tommy Rich to pop up, but that's a hell of a good one. In Japan, Dynamite discovered that he loved the Japanese strong style. He adapted it and started putting on some great matches in Japan. And while we're kind of on this topic already, how would you describe Dynamite Kid as a pro wrestler, like his in-ring work for maybe someone who's never really seen him. Oh, it, it, it's it's tough to classify because he he does a little bit of of British stuff that that's that's impressive. Like if you want to wrestle around a little bit with him, and then of course, like he can brawl, he can do high flying stuff, he can come off the top rope, he does all kinds of suplexes. So he's got some mat based stuff. It's hard to really pin down exactly what he does. It's like that first guy probably in UFC that had multiple tools. You know, like yeah, his yeah. early UFC, it was like, we have a, a kickboxer, and then we have a sumo wrestler, and yeah. then we have like a Greco-Roman guy, yeah. and then we have this guy who's just a barroom brawler, and we're going to put him against each other. And then all of a sudden you get a guy. Marco Huas or Couture was an early one. Yeah, like yeah. He, had, he, had, he had the wrestling, but he also had like a striking background, probably somebody like that. But I think if you want to just give an overall description, 
a guy who wrestled like he was 10 feet tall but could fly around with some of the best cruiserweights of all time. I would just say, uh, yeah, just everybody knows That's, that's, yeah. I know. Super clone, if you know that's exactly what he did. So as Dynamite's career was taken <laughs> off, back in England, Dynamite's cousin Davey had begun training with Ted Bentley. So Dynamite called him up, as one story goes, told him to come to Calgary. So Stu got him a ticket over. Well, I mean, in the documentary, it was like corroborated by multiple sources that actually Dynamite did not like Davey. Right. Didn't yeah, want him yeah, over yeah. there because he, he was like a reminder of what he left. But- Keep in mind, you know, Dynamite made a promise to his mother because all the male members of his family were alcoholics. Now, probably at this time, he had a few beers and probably had his own addiction issues at this time. But of course, you know, when you have those issues, like you're not the problem. Everybody yeah, else yeah. is. So he's probably Still thinking honoring like, your mom. So he's probably thinking like, oh, Davey's probably like my alcoholic father. Screw him. He's yeah. not working hard because he didn't know Davey all that well. So he just assumed Davey was a moron. And a matter of fact, he called him Simple Simon because he thought <laughs> he was dense and not very smart. So like you're going to bring in this alcoholic moron. No, don't do that. And also, too, it's a little bit of too when you're a wrestler and you have a niche like dynamite's niches he's british if you bring in another british guy that's equal to and might be able to take a little bit less money yeah. there's no longer a need for you anymore so it's a little Not bit a of a giant big john stud type shit yeah. yeah it's a little bit of protecting your spot a little bit too so i think there's a little bit more to that as opposed to you know i hate this guy or there, there's an actual rage there to it but you know bruce was smart enough to finagle him and kind of made it clear like no we we want both of you (laughs) yeah Yeah, well if both of you are good both of you can stay but i'm sure there was a lot of thoughts in dynamite's head like i'm gonna be the top guy and and for much of discussion and research it always seemed like for a while dynamite was always calling the shots with the team later down the road like dynamite would negotiate the money Mm -hmm. you know davy you're you're simple simon i got it you just you worry about your corner i'll talk business i'll talk business with the officials and negotiate everything big boy shit yeah so that is kind of uh the book versus the documentary round one i just wanted to make sure we're given both sides of the story so people make up their own damn mind yeah so either way, Davy Boy comes to Calgary, and again, a story from the book. Dynamite was about to go on this tour, so on top of getting Davy the gig, he decided he was going to drop his belt to his cousin without anyone knowing, even Davy. So he let Davy get a surprise pin on him in the ring. He held him down on top of him, which pissed off the hearts, but it would help boost Davy's career while Dynamite was off to Anoki's. Also, a story from the book, the same night he dropped the belt to Davy, Dynamite was back in his room when he got a knock on the door. He opened the door to see a 12 or 13 year old boy who told Dynamite he was going to be a wrestler exactly like him. Oh no. And that boy grew up to be oh, no. he who shall not be named. Dynamite left for Japan and this is 1981, his tour of Japan when Dynamite would begin one of the most legendary feuds in wrestling history, a rivalry that over the next couple of years would produce some of the best, most influential, game-changing matches of all time against Tiger Mask. So Dynamite, who was without a doubt one of the best wrestlers in the world, 
was facing Tiger Mask, who was without a doubt one of the best wrestlers in the world. It must have been like when Hall met Oates. Pretty much. He's like, I love that mustache and or that tiger mask you're wearing. And let's make magic. Sayama, smile. Tiger eyes. <laughs> watching yeah, you. Jake with the save. <laughs> oh, God. That's so... Uh, thank you. Let's talk about these tiger mask matches. Random order, just get it out of your system. I'll start because I don't know if I can exactly put into words... The, how I felt when I first saw these, it was it was actually me and Micah had just become friends. And it was one of those things where you're like, you like wrestling? I like <laughs> wrestling too. And then, you know, so we're talking about it. And he sends me a link. Nick's to, top 10's like all fucking Hogan. Yeah, 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 yeah. He sends me a link to Dynamite Kid. And I'm just like, what the fuck is this? This was before I was born? Yeah, like, like wrestling-wise, it changed my life. Like, I, I know I'd seen Rey Mysterio, and I love Rey Mysterio, and, like, you know, High Flyer Lucha guys, but how, like, brutal Dynamite Kid was, and how he could fly, how he could chain wrestle, how he could... Just everything was this perfect package of pro wrestling when, you know, all I'd seen most of my life were leg drops and, <laughs> and stunners and Lodi. Oh, fuck. Lodi. <laughs> I don't know. what. How did these matches affect you? Especially, specifically, Jake, who is a pro wrestler. But either of you. If you want to no, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, he, he kicked it into you. I think it, you were a little bit more important. Uh, well, I mean, you were you were a tape guy, so like I, you yeah, know I mean, you know the tape I'm going to discuss. Uh, shit. A specific one? Yeah. So many there was, comps. There was one that was always floating around. It was wrestling's greatest matches. I think from like 1980 to 1982, and there were like eight or nine matches on it, and seven of them yeah, I was gonna say, are Tiger Mask versus Dynamite Kid. They should relabel this. Yeah. <laughs> I think like, why do we title this something different? But yeah, it just that, that, that just goes to show. Like wrestling's greatest matches, when tape traders put it together it's like uh, oops it's like so, yeah and it's not even it's not even a mistake when you see them you're <laughs> like oh yeah i get it and, and i i remember like when we were piecing together the documentary and just going through all these matches and just thinking about you know we could put this match on raw yeah and it would easily be most certainly not even just a lateral movie would be better than some of the stuff that's on there. And that's not me being a crusty Mark, like, oh, Raw really looks like shit right now. <laughs> like, but if you took took this match from, like, 81 and, and put it on Raw when we were doing the documentary, I was like, man, that'd be just as good. But the thing is, you could still, but the thing is, you could do that now. Yeah. You could yeah, put this yeah. match on SmackDown, and it's not a drop-off whatsoever. Or NXT TakeOver, or even a, a PWG show, like, it fits, it's just still that good. And, and when you see, in, in any type of art form, like, a piece of music, uh, a, a film that you could just transport into any era if, if this came out right now yep. that it still holds up it's it's hard to find just well, with everything the way attention spans styles and tastes and everything like you get a little bit of music like there's certain songs that just kind of stand the test of time that's why yep. we have classic rock radio for <laughs> ever you you always have that but the fact that you have like dynamite kid batches just they stand the test of time and putting it and trying to putting in context of what was going on in the world of wrestling it, it just it boggles the mind like i said you're this is even like pre hulk hulkamania yeah this is before all of that and it just putting this in the context of that it just it melts your brain yeah 
It really does. And and, and how good Tiger Mask was. Like yeah, we were talking about lightning. He was pure fucking lightning. And and that and the thing is, it was just it was done so right. Like Sayama had had traveled the world. He'd gone to Mexico already. He'd gone to the UK. He'd he'd bumped into Dynamite in the UK, and they already had a little bit of chemistry together. And then they're they're coming out with this match, and also too like. The Tiger Mask cartoon was a big deal, so New Japan was going to push it and treat it with as much respect as possible because yeah. they got a lot of money invested in it. So they're going to really push it real hard and just it's just unbelievable. And it's when it's weird when you, as a wrestler, you find somebody that you have so much chemistry with. You just hope that it's on the biggest platform possible. Yeah, right. Like I had some great matches with uh, Brad Attitude, and nobody, dude, dude. nobody, <laughs> nobody ever will see those and know about those those matches because they still have one of the uh, flyers for you versus Brad Attitude. Oh, we had so much chemistry <laughs> together. Like there's unbelievable timing and just incredible, and, yeah. and nobody ever saw that. Nobody ever saw the matches I had in Southwest Virginia with. Casey McKnight, who's now Scott Dawson. Nobody ever saw those matches. Yeah, those. those matches were unbelievable. I mean, we're doing like belly to back suplexes off a top rope onto a ring that's made out of wood. Like just the <laughs> dumbest stuff the end ever. Of your career type shit. Yeah. And just, you know, you only hope when you find somebody with so much chemistry, it's on the biggest stage possible. And that's exactly what happened with Dynamite and Tiger Mass. They had this unbelievable chemistry with each other. They were on this large platform that people were willing to put out there into the world and they just nailed it every single time and and you'd think that there'd be a kind of a repetitious thing like okay dynamite's always he obviously he's always going to go for the diving headbutt and he got his things that he does but each one of those matches you know that you see on that comp tape were all completely different yeah, and had their own little stories and there's something or a different tone a different direction they'd always go to you touched on that about art forms and seeing them in context when I was really learning about uh, movies and get, evolving as a movie geek and evolving as a wrestling geek and watching Dynamite Kid and uh, Tiger Mask, it was it was putting that in the early 80s and then it was me watching older movies like Fritz Lang doing shit with M and just all the other filmmakers that were actually trying stuff back then and weren't just mailing it in. And it was putting that mind frame back then where it was just that poof of your brain. Like, what the fuck am I watching, man? It was just unbelievable how if I see this now, this is going to blow me away. But they were doing it back then. And why am I only discovering or hearing about it now? Why is not a bunch of fucking people telling me about this before this moment in my life? Those matches just it was I can't remember the exact tapes. So many were weird comps where it was just random stuff. But man, just seeing Dynamite and Tiger Mask pop up when I didn't know what I was getting into, that's what is the best. When you find out about something that you you go in completely cold, you're like, who are these small little dudes? And the, cra- the crowd has that tension and that excitement and anticipation about it. And when it starts to turn into what it is and what the audience knows what it's going to be, you, you get goosebumps, man. It, it's that discovery that is so much fucking fun. It was just unbelievable. It was just these guys are doing stuff that I didn't think existed now, and it existed before me. And to make it a little more unbelievable and amazing, during this entire feud, Dynamite Kid was 21, 22, maybe 23 years old. Yeah, we're doing great. I think of all the matches that really kind of surprised me when I was rewatching, I think the 421-83 match, that's the Meltzer five-star one, I think that's their last match. They might have had one more. I need to double-check. But that one has like the match restart. 
the crowd reaction to uh, Dynamite teasing a Tombstone pile driver, they go fucking ballistic, and Tiger Mask wiggles out of it, and just the tease on the Tombstone was unbelievable. There was like four outside dives. At one point, Dynamite Kid gets a bottle from under the ring and smashes it against the guardrail and tries to cut up Tiger Mask. <laughs> throughout part of the match he does two bottles and then there's uh one of the wrestler on the outside who's sweeping glass out of the fucking ring while they're still wrestling in the ring just the the atmosphere on the 421 match is something bizarre but the one that really stood out to me on the rewatches was the madison square garden match because like you said that was kind of a one-off they just brought him in i think new japan would just uh, sometimes record in different locations and just do stuff. The Madison Square Garden crowd had no clue what they were getting into. There was these little dudes, emphasis on little, was like, what the hell are they going to do? There's a, But they had no clue what they were in for. It's only like a seven or eight minute match, but when they get going, the crowd really is just... There's this moment in the match, I think uh, it's when Tiger Mask teases the dive to the outside the 619 thing and it's like it was when i was listening to the jericho metzler thing talking about this they hit on this point too because it was this one moment he teases that the crowd just really has this moment like what the fuck yeah, is going sta- on one guy stands up yeah yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> there's this one dude who slowly stands up and starts clapping and he has this look on his face like i didn't know this was possible and it is just the goosebumps in the madison square garden match are so much fun because you know that everyone in that room has never seen anything like what they're seeing. Well, and that's the the interesting thing about the Madison Square Garden match is you have to you definitely have to come to terms and put that in context. Yeah, I would love I would love to look good. up online what the match listing was for that night. <laughs> like who was the match before and who was the match ever? Did they like, all right, well, the match that's going to follow it is Pedro Morales <laughs> and Don Morocco? Yeah. Like, is that what they did? Like, is that what they piece. Yeah, like, w- I, like, how, like, that's got to melt your brain. Yeah. And then they still had another two or three years of this. Like, you're going to have Bob Backlund taking on Ray Stevens uh, or, or Pat Patterson. Nothing. It's any any of these guys. All these guys are stars. But we're just gonna put in this Dynamite Kid and Tiger Mask match in the middle of it. And part of the reason they they're doing it is because of the relationship that New Japan had with the WWF at the time. And Tiger Mask was the WWF Junior Heavyweight Champion, and that's why he was over. And obviously, we need somebody to wrestle him. We don't have anybody that really can keep up with this guy. Well, there's this guy in Calgary we can fly in that they're working with a lot. Okay, Calgary is a cheaper flight than flying over Tatsumi Fujinami to have him wrestle him. And I'm sure New Japan didn't want to have that match in the States. They'd rather have that over there. So, yeah, like they they just booked it as a lark. Like, all right, we'll just let the guys (laughs) throw this in here. And also, too, like you see Tiger Mask, and for the New York audience, you know, the only real mask wrestler they'd seen would have been Mil Mascaris. So they're like, oh, we're just going to see something like Mil Mascaris, which they most certainly did not get. Because even as far as luchador standards go, Mil Mascaris is not good. So to see, like, oh, and you expected Mil Mascaris versus this other short guy? Okay, sure, we'll see what happens. And then you get get a beer, and then then this happens? (laughs) Like, melt your brain type stuff. That match reminded me of stand-up comedy where when you're not a famous stand-up who can just walk out and start killing like you yeah yeah you know the first minute or two it's getting the crowd to just even fucking look at you 
and then you get some laughs you get some laughs and it builds and hopefully by the end you're just crushing so it was fun to see them literally have to prove themselves to these <laughs> yep. people and by the end i mean they were just marking out it was fun to see them like earn that respect in real time well aside from this tiger mask feud dynamite would bounce back and forth between his home base of calgary and working in japan a lot he'd even make trips to places like dubai hawaii and antigua and eventually Dynamite would get a call from New Japan asking them to join them at this Madison Square match, August 30th, 1982. And at Madison Square Garden, Dynamite Kid would meet Vince Sr. and Vince Jr. And that is where we will pick up on Dynamite Kid Part 2. So we're Tim Bell Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and YouTube. We'd love to hear what you think about these episodes, so leave us some feedback on those things. Also, this episode is coming out on my birthday. Oh, God. So get me a present by getting yourself a present over <laughs> at our Patreon, patreon.com slash Pod. Speaking of Patreon, big shout out to Jeff Taylor and Wayne Dwyer for donating. We yeah, appreciate Jeff, it. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff. Every little bit helps. Thank you so much. You can find Jake at Manscout Manning on all the social medias. Check out his other podcast, How Did This Get Booked? Micah is jtrotter27 on Twitter. I am N-I-C-K-O-H-L-E-S-S-A on all the social medias. On behalf of Jake Manning, Micah Loving, and myself, Tatsumi Fujinami. Hello, everyone. This is the Macho Man Randy Savage, and you've been listening to 10 Bell Pod. If you want to support this show... Head over to patreon.com slash 10 bell pod. Oh, yeah.